Hi there, you're listening to the Steve Schramm Show, where we train Christians to become confident, passionate servants of Jesus so they can grow in their walk with God and share their faith more persuasively. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us this week here on another episode of the podcast. Been having a great week and hope you certainly have as well. Coming off the heels of a great Easter season, have uh, a little bit more content on the resurrection coming up in a couple of weeks to kind of follow up to um, the the content that we put out a couple of weeks ago now uh, on the evidence for the resurrection, that interview with the True Strength Life, my buddy Aaron Simpkins, and go check that out if you haven't yet, and you can find all of that right there on our website. Well, this week, I want to talk to you about something that I think is um, important in some, well, in all Christian circles, really, but there's definitely some Christian circles that don't take this as seriously as others, and I want to make a point of that. I want to make a note of how serious this issue is and why it's serious and maybe how we can contribute to thinking more carefully about it. When it comes to the idea of God's Word, I mean, it's incontrovertibly the most influential book that has ever been written. It really is. And it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic, but largely speaking, broadly speaking, in Hebrew and Greek, not in English. The concept of this is striking on its own, right? I mean, the God who created the universe, literally created everything we see, wants to communicate with you and I, or with you and me. I don't know the grammar on that. Anyway, he wants to communicate with us, and he's used the written word to do it. People say, well, if God, if there really is a God, he wouldn't have used a a book to communicate to us. Why would he use a book? Well, why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he? We use books to communicate our most important ideas all the time. Trust me, I read a lot of people who, they have blogs, they have podcasts, etc., but they save their best content for their books. They organize their content better in their books. Their, their books feature a logical flow of thought that a lot of times their other material does not. We create books. I, I create books. I love to write books. I've, I've got three out there right now um, that you can grab. So, you know, uh, books are the way that God uh, or that many of us choose to communicate. And, uh, of course, um, God communicated in the same way. Of course, God inspired his book. He used human authors um, he chose particular people at a particular time in a particular place to use their particular circumstances to produce this work that was later put together and that we understand as the canon of the Bible. So much time and money and effort is understandably given to the process of discovering the accurate way to read and understand biblical information. And again, those resources are not limited to the discovery of God's Word, but also to the availability of it. So translating it and disseminating it across the nations of the world is also a big deal, something that lots of time and money is rightly devoted to. Again, I'm not telling you anything new here, but in the Western world, the predominant language is English. And there's a rich history when it comes to English translations of the Bible. Without a doubt, the King James, for example, is the most well-known, the longest standing, and the most widely disseminated. It hails from the time of Shakespeare, at a time when uh, many would argue that the English language was at its peak of beauty. And even its critics tend to label it a literary 
masterpiece. I mean, you there is no de- denying the beauty and the longevity and the um, uh, the love that we can have for even the King James Version of the Bible. Um, but now today, there are over 450 different English translations. And what I want to do is not talk about the translations, um, but rather go beyond those to talk a little bit about the original languages. Is it important to have any kind of study of the original languages of the Bible? So let's explore that question by first starting with another one. Where is God's word? Where is God's word? Now, one of the big questions that Christian theologians have had to wrestle with involves both the nature and the location of God's word. And this concerns two doctrines that we know of as both the inspiration, and that's what the Bible is, and then the preservation, where the Bible is, of Scripture. Now, these are related ideas, but the point being that a Bible that is written but inaccessible to God's people is not productive for God's purposes, and so it has to be both written and accessible. So we have to start with the assumption, and I think this is a very reasonable assumption, that if God spoke, we generally have access to what he spoke. Hopefully you would agree with that. If God spoke, we generally have access to what he spoke. Now, that's not to say that um, there's not room to learn. I mean, every Christian goes through that process of learning. Uh, If you are a Christian and you are 20 years old and you don't learn anything new about what God has revealed when you are 40 years old, then you are not growing. You are not learning. And that's a a problem. So uh, learning more and understanding better is not the issue. The issue is, is if God spoke, do we have access to that? And, and I think the answer to that is yes. Now, some are going to see a problem here because that with the exception of very few, scholars are in agreement that the locus of God's word, that is the, the, the point uh, at, at which God's word really is, the inspiration of the text, where that happened, is in the original autographs. So here's what this means. The intended meaning of the text is found only by understanding the intent of the original author of a given portion of Scripture. Let me say that part again here. The intended meaning of the text is found only by understanding the intent of the original author of a given portion of Scripture. And what this entails is that all of his cultural nuances, his assumptions, and even his writing technique must be considered. And that, generally speaking, copies of the work are granted no such status. So, in in practice here, we might say things that the Apostle Paul uh, knew based on the culture around him, things that he assumed based on the culture around him, and even his writing technique have to be considered. And so this is where, you know, again, I'm just using Paul as an example, but you have texts in the Bible that some believe were authored by him. And um, some believe we're not authored by him. And the way that they evaluate that is they they look at the texts that they are reasonably certain were authored by the Apostle Paul. And then they look at other ones that they aren't so sure of. 
and say, okay, well, does this have the marks of the Apostle Paul's language and, and writing? Does it have the way he opened letters traditionally? Does it have the way he closed his letters traditionally? Does it have uh, Pauline language or does it have language that predates uh, him? So we look at these things. In other words, there's so much more to it than reading the heading at the at the at the top of our our our, our modern printed Bibles that say you know um, the Epistle of Paul to the Galatians. You know what I'm saying? Things of that nature. There's there's more to it than just that. But if the original autographs are the inspired text, if that's where God's word is, and those are what are inerrant and infallible, then where exactly does that leave our English translations? Now, when the preacher instructs us to open the Bible at our worship services throughout the week, are we really reading the word of God? That's the question. Can we say that we're really reading the Word of God? Well, yeah, I think so. So let's talk about the use and misuse of English translations. So textual criticism. This is something that, you know, there are some people that don't even like the word uh, because, or, or the term, I should say, because of the word criticism. Well, again, uh, textual criticism, it just means it's a discipline. It's a field. Uh, it's criticism in the sense of let's get let's criticize in other words let's let's be critical about what's actually there let's get rid of what shouldn't be there because if we're being honest and sincere christians then what we want to do is understand the text as god inspired it no i mean ultimately that's what we want we want to be able to understand what god has said so therefore it's very important and uh, people all throughout history um some people like to say that, you know, the people who, who authored the King James, by the way, I love the King James. I primarily use the King James, but uh, people want to say that that's not a result of textual criticism. Well, I mean, it is. I got news for you. Erasmus was a textual critic. I mean, he was following the rules. Okay. Um, and in, 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 in those King James translators who were translating the Bible based on those manuscripts that they had. Again, they were all doing textual criticism. It's all part of the same thing here. This is what they were doing. So it's not a bad term. Uh, the, the word itself, criticism, may have a negative connotation in our kind of modern vernacular. But I assure you, in this sense, that the idea that I'm, I'm getting at here is, is not bad. It's an academic discipline. Okay? So um, it is messy, though. Okay? It's a very messy field. And we can learn a lot from them. Um, and this is not to say that we have no hope of understanding the Bible, but it does mean, and, and this is so important, that we cannot pretend as though a perfect, complete English Bible fell from the sky with instructions on how to infallibly read it. That's not how this process works. Now, there's a lot to consider when you factor what's involved. Think about this. You're moving a text, ultimately, from the mind of God through an inspired biblical author, through the pen of translators, and into your hands. Now, um, there are lots of considerations, but not the least of them is how the message might be transmitted. And a flawed view of this process is going to lead one to believe that God, uh, or it may at least lead one to believe that God inspired translations as well as the originals. Now, this is wrong um, and, and bad thinking, I think, for at least two reasons. There's probably more, but I wrote down two. Um, the first is that if we agree to the doctrine of a closed canon, that is, there is no more scriptural revelation that can happen today, 
then there's no reason to think that God would inspire a new version of the text. I mean, why think that randomly God picked a time period for God to inspire a new random version of the text of the Bible? Now, some think that God would do this, and what they do is they cite Paul's various translations of the Old Testament as proof positive. So, um, uh, one uh, particular scholar likes to say this, and I agree with him, that the New Testament is the inspired commentary on the Old Testament. And I totally agree with that. And um, so you can actually look at how New Testament authors used and applied, understood, used and applied Old Testament passages, and you can understand what they were thinking. Um, and, and so sometimes you get an, a kind of a newly a new way of understanding that the original readers would not have understood because they didn't have the full context, say, of the church. Uh, they were thinking in, in terms of Israel, not in terms of the church, where, where Paul is going to use some of those things. So what's the problem there? How does that work? Well, you know, um, the problem with that is that Paul is regarded by other authors of Scripture to be a divinely appointed author himself, not merely a translator to new audiences. So the analogy is not one-to-one. It doesn't hold. And again, you have um, disciples of the disciples, so guys like Clement and Polycarp, who are affirming Paul's theology, Paul's uh, apostleship, and Paul's relationship to the original um, disciples. And so, again, uh, we we look at this, and they, they refer to the work of Paul, and other authors like Peter, for example, refers to the work of Paul as scripture. So uh, we have kind of this loop going on here of affirmation where they're affirming each other as scriptural writing, but we have nothing like that going on today. So there's no reason to think that God's inspiring new texts today, especially not based on that argument. The other thing is that we have an overabundance of manuscript evidence for the Bible and a doctrine of preservation that makes use of this evidence really seems preferable, uh, excuse me, preferable to me uh, to one that can only be affirmed by faith. In other words, so one could say, well, I have faith that God doubly inspired the Bible. So he inspired not only the originals, but he had this translation as well. He inspired it. But there's no evidence you can use to actually prove this. You can't cite any biblical evidence to prove that a translation that came years after the Bible, centuries, decades, uh, centuries, millennia, after the closing of the canon, uh, somehow is going to be an inspired work. Uh, you, you, uh, there's no argument you can use from the text itself to to justify that. So, um, I think the way that God preserved His Word is quite incredible. I mean, these seem like f- flawed paths, but the way that God did do it is amazing. I mean, we have over five thousand extant copies in the original languages, and more than twenty thousand manuscript copies produced in earliest centuries, in the earliest centuries following their original authorship that we have. And in fact, my buddy Aaron on our interview the other day um, told me that he thought that number was up now closer to 30,000, which is just incredible that we have this. So to corrupt the text over time, based on the numbers that we have, uh, in other words, to to, to actually uh, change the theology or to evolve the theology or to corrupt the theology based on the manuscript evidence that we have, that would take a conspiracy so miraculous that honestly, it would serve as as proof itself for God's existence because it would be a miracle. Like seriously, it's it's that bad. So there's no reason to think that God did not use this method. This is what we have. This is the information that we have. So let's go with it. Now, differences exist 
in some of these manuscript copies. So what do we make of that? Well, you know, one could make a really scary claim like this one that Ehrman makes, Bart Ehrman, in misquoting Jesus. He says, quote, there are more variations among our manuscripts than the words in the New Testament, close quote. All right, now it sounds pretty scary. Um, more variations. There's, in other words, there's more. There's more change, more variation, more difference between the manuscripts than than words in the New Testament. I mean, what on earth? The problem is that the majority of these, like, well over ninety nine percent, amount to little more than the scribal transposition of a letter or the slight movement of a punctuation mark. I mean, really, really, it's it's that small. These do not change the meaning of the text. I would be willing to admit, and I, again, I couldn't even give you the examples right off. There might be two or three that are in question such that they would um, alter our understanding of a text. But even then, it, it would not change the theology that we have. Uh, Christian theology, and this, I don't have the quote in front of me, but Ehrman has publicly uh, admitted this as well. Christian theology is completely intact despite these differences. Ryan Ledger, he's another Christian blogger, and he wrote, he wrote a really good post on this, uh, on the subject of, uh, of the manuscripts and um, of the scholarship regarding this question. I'm just going to uh, give you his summary. Again, he quotes the experts, but I'm going to quote him giving a summary of his um his work here. He says, quote, in some 99.75% of all textual variants don't affect our reading of the text. These variants include spelling errors, word order changes, synonyms, and nonsense readings. This means when you read your New Testament today, you can be confident that the text has been preserved for your reading and not radically altered as some skeptics say. Of the remaining variants, none of them affect any core doctrine of the Christian faith. Close quote. So here's the point. Because of the sheer amount of data we have to work with, we can know with extreme precision what was originally written down, even in texts that we don't have. It's absolutely incredible. Now, from this data, we could begin to draw some conclusions. We don't have access to the originals, but we do have access to manuscripts which accurately represent what was written in the originals. So we can agree whether or not you agree with the content of what is presented in the Bible. We can agree that when we read our English Bible, we have a faithful translation of what was originally written in the original language, and we cannot conclude that our particular translation is inspired. So these are some things that we can draw, some conclusions that we can draw. Such translations make no claim to be inspired of God. Okay, remember, they are a testament to the mountain of manuscript evidence and extraordinary scholarship that has gone to understand the text of the Bible. So what is the actual usefulness then of Hebrew and Greek text? Why why study them? Because again, we can't affirm the inspiration of the original autographs without the need to study them because of the amazing accuracy that we do have in our translations based on the manuscript copies? Well, the answer is that, yeah, while we can't understand them, we could understand our, um, we could understand what was written so much better by equipping ourselves with the tools necessary to read the text in the original languages. Now, I am not talking about going through and having to learn um, Hebrew and 
Greek. As a matter of fact, uh, that might not even be uh, a good thing because you might, uh, you know, they say that some people know enough to be dangerous. You know what I'm saying? You know, you know just about enough about a subject to be dangerous. I'm not talking about trying to learn Hebrew and Greek. If you are really dedicated to that and, and want to learn that, then I, I say go for it. I think you absolutely should because it would be uh, a good idea. But I think most people, it probably would not be a, a great idea to do that. All you need is tools that will allow you to understand some of the very basics of these languages and help you parse how they were, you know, different words were used in different, um, by different authors in different places and what kind of context that they were in. So there are things that you can do, uh, like using Lagos, uh, like the Bible study software. Uh, that's my favorite uh, that I love to use. You could use tools like that. Good commentaries, good interlinears, um, good lexicons and things of that nature are going to help you to understand these words, how they were used by different authors, how they were used by different people in the culture around the biblical authors, etc. There are things that by studying the Hebrew and Greek text, you're going to be able to come to a fuller and richer understanding of um, because you'll really get a sense for what those words actually meant to the original reader. Okay. So again, you, you need to avail yourself of these tools. I think it would be worthwhile for your study. Uh, familiar self, familiarize, excuse me, yourself with the uh, basics of each language. Um, yeah, I mean, simple things. Just learning that uh, original Hebrew was uh, written right to left and that Koine Greek uh, that we see in the New Testament has genders and those genders matter for how you understand and interpret verses. Um, these are the kind of things that make a big deal when it comes to uh, Bible study. And uh, let me just be the first one to say here that I am I'm not where I want to be on this. I have more I want to learn. Uh, I have ambitions that I want to learn more about the original languages. I'd love to be able to speak them one day or to at least I'll be able to understand them and interpret them. So, hey, I'm working on it. I'm a work in progress and I know you are too. Well, thank you for uh, joining us this week. I hope you enjoyed this particular episode. I do want to read another podcast review here for you. It's a really short one, short and sweet from Dingo007. It says, great podcast, knowledgeable and professional, presents creation science in new ways I have not read or heard in other literature. Well, I want to thank you for that review. And uh, again, the reason he says that a lot of times we talk about issues of creation and things like that on this podcast. In fact, it used to be entirely based on creation and probably was back when uh, this podcast review was left. So I uh, am going through and reading some of the old reviews. There are only a few of them though. So I would love for you to leave a review for the podcast if you enjoy the content that we create here. That would be super, super helpful. It lets other people know when they come across the podcast that this is something that they should be listening to as well. And finally, on that point, I would just encourage you to share it. Uh, share this podcast with a friend. This is um, the, the, the statistics show, and this is this is very recent and relevant information, the statistics show that the vast majority of people who start listening to a podcast start doing so at the recommendation of a friend. And uh, this is just a, a striking similarity to me, but it actually, statistics in the church world seem to suggest something very similar, that um, somebody being invited by a, a friend or a family member is the main reason that new people who come to church and end up staying in church... Um, 
that's the main way that they got in. So again, it's just word of mouth. So uh, if you love this podcast, tell somebody else about it. Share it on social media. You know, say, hey, I've got this new podcast I've been listening to. I really like the information this guy puts out. You should give it a listen. Again, that's all I'm asking. Uh, if you, if everybody who listens would tell one person and I get one new listener for every one person, then uh, overnight we've doubled our listenership. But again, it's not for me. I mean, I, I don't do this to hear myself talk and I don't do this so you can hear me talk. Uh, the reason that we do this is to teach people to be more biblically literate, to learn how to grow in their faith and in their walk with God, and again, to be able to share it confidently with others. So if you're interested in helping me help other people do that, then the best thing you can possibly do is support the show by telling somebody else about it. Send them an episode that you like that you think was particularly well done or, or well argued or whatever. And uh, if you have suggestions for me, on how to improve the podcast and make it better so you'd be more willing to share it with your friends. I'm always willing to entertain those as well. I want to make this the best show and most helpful show for you possible. And you can do that by reaching out to steve at steveshram.com. All right. Well, God bless you. And thank you again for joining us another week. We'll see you next time.